Love conquers sinful anger. We must today talk about anger, and we must talk about anger because our text today speaks of anger. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If not, turn in your pew Bible if you're in the sanctuary, page 1822. We can make sense out of our anger, but we can't make sense out of it if we don't understand love. For all anger arises out of deep, deep drives or out of love, maybe out of threats for what we love or fears for what we worry we might lose, whether it's threats or loss. All of our lives are governed by love. And if you're a Christian and you've thought of the Christian life as simply a certain set of beliefs followed by behaviors, you've missed a significant portion of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ because this text will remind us that your emotions, and in particular, even your sinful emotions, have to be engaged in order to experience God's love. Feelings and emotions are a significant part of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, that we're to experience love in every way in terms of who God has made us to be. Through the years, I've spent quite a bit of time in premarital counseling, counseling people who are getting married, and we do a session on communication and conflict resolution. And I tell these two romantic, in love people that marriage is a commitment to working through conflict in a godly manner. Your love will not keep you from conflict and your love will not keep you from anger. And part of your commitment is to know how to resolve conflict and anger and to resolve that conflict in a way that doesn't cause more harm but provides greater blessing to the one that you deal with. In fact, love will always be the fuel for anger and love is always the solution. What we've been seeing in Ephesians chapter 4 is this ethic of unity and all of these Gospel commands that Paul will lay out here from verse 17, actually through the middle of chapter 5, is as if he's rehearsing the Ten Commandments for gospel communities. He says there's to be an ethic of unity, and that ethic of unity is an ethic of love, and we'll see it flows from love. But you can't make sense out of your anger if you don't understand love. And Paul will give three prohibitions for anger in this text. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And in your anger, do not give the devil an opportunity. They are prohibitions, but we'll see they're also provisions of power in the gospel because the gospel love doesn't simply forgive you when you fail. Gospel love, when it touches your heart, transforms your heart and makes you live out of that love. We'll see that love is why we must make sense of our anger, and we'll see love is how we make sense. Ephesians chapter 4, first, verse 23, we'll read to 5, verse 2. 
You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. The anger of God and the love of God, at first they don't seem compatible, do they? Most modern people are delighted to accept the love of God, but have questions about an angry God. Isn't that just the Old Testament? Didn't Jesus teach us to love? Well, no doubt the Bible teaches us that God is a God of anger and love. He's a God of judgment and forgiveness. This last year, it seems as if the whole world has been angry. Americans have been angry over the pandemic, the economic fallout, civil unrest, political division, policing, trials, riots. America and the world seems to be burning in fear and anger and hate. Shame often is the weapon used by the angry. Now, some people don't want to talk about anger. And some think it's polite and best, even as a Christian, not to look at your anger. You might say, I'm just frustrated. <laughs> Maybe you say, I'm sad or depressed. Maybe you say, he or she makes me so mad. Now, he or she might be irritating, but they can't really make you mad. You're just angry. Ask physicians, they'll tell you that the greatest destructive force to your health as a human being is anger. Anger has well been documented to wound and weaken the heart, damage the vascular system, affect the immune system, and the respiratory system as well as the brain. Our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health is dependent on how we relate to and deal with our anger. Now, anger is an emotion that God has given humanity. But how we deal with our anger depends on our personality. Some people are 
quiet, more reserved. Others express their anger and are quick to want to blame. Our passage here tells us first why we must deal with our anger. And that's because love is to be the central experience in the Christian's life. We'll see that we have an upward dimension of that love, we have an inward dimension of that love, and we have an outward dimension to that love. So that's point number one. It won't take long. Then we'll spend our time looking at how we must deal with anger. That'll take a little longer. This is just 30-minute therapy. I want you to know gospel therapy, but you're going to need to spend a lot of time reflecting on how you're dealing with your anger. As the scriptures tell us, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. First, love is why we must make sense out of our anger. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. There's an upward dimension to understanding and relating to God. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved and gave himself for you as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You see, the love that we've experienced from God is to shape every human relationship and every response to every person. But what happens when love doesn't shape our hearts, when we see flaws, when we've been wounded, when we feel angry, when we're jealous, when we've been disrespected, when we've been ignored, we get angry and we want to do something to someone or with this anger. What you should see here is Paul is telling us, yes, we are in Christ. That means that God forgives us, but we're still in Adam, which means that he wants to transform us. He wants to change our hearts, not simply our anger, but all of our emotions. He wants to meet us in those places of confusion or hurt or even sinful anger. First, love enables us to live upwardly, but also inwardly to live fully as Christ-centered followers. Look at verses 31 through 32. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and every form of malice. Be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Paul says that when the gospel touches your heart, it melts your hate. It melts your unwillingness to forgive. You let go of bitterness. You let go of rage. You let go of malice. You see, the love of God is to transform our hearts that we might be kind, tender-hearted, like the one who has loved us. So it has an upward dimension, an inward dimension, but also an outward dimension. Look there in verse 25. It says, Speak truth to one another, for we are members of one body. There's a sense in which as we walk through these gospel commands in the next several weeks, as Pastor Frank started this section of uh, Paul's teaching on being a consecrated community, he started last week, he said, the motivation here is that we are members of one body. The way you could read the Greek would be that after every phrase where Paul says, be angry and do not sin, he gives this logic because we're members of one body. And then he says, do not steal, but to um, find something useful that you might have something to give. Why? 
because we are members of one body. And then don't speak falsehood. Why? And then don't uh, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. He's arguing that the ethics of the unity of the body are the ethics of love. The royal law, James says, is the law of love. That's point number one. Love is why we must make sense of our anger. Now, point number two, not as easy to address, understand, or deal with. How do we make sense out of our anger? Well, what causes anger? I've spent time preparing for this sermon, talking to physicians and pastors and counselors. And uh, three things cause us to feel angry. When we feel threatened of our material well-being, when those in whom we love, our children and our grandchildren, we think are threatened, we feel angry. And in many ways, that's the right response to feel that there's a threat. You need to move towards those that you love or towards others who are threatening those who you love. But we also feel angry when we've experienced an expectation that's not been met or a goal is blocked. Something that's very important to us is not being fulfilled and we grow angry. We want to use that anger somehow to break through or break down and, or even break away from whatever is keeping us from accomplishing what we feel is so important. Or when we feel disrespected or belittled or ignored or treated unkindly. It is rare that our anger is righteous. For most of us, most of our anger is sinful because it flows out of selfishness, self-protection, self-direction. But this verse today tells us we are to be angry and not to sin. He gives three prohibitions, but I want you to see he also gives these provisions in this direction. So when you feel angry, there should be a warning light. You should ask yourself, is this damaging me? Is this damaging my relationships? But you also should, should feel hopeful that through that anger, there may be a place of healing and a place where you might can restore either your heart or a relationship. So first he says, in your anger, do not sin. The phrase comes from Psalm 4.4. If you read Psalm 4, David is reflecting over the fact that he's been mistreated, that he's been betrayed, that he's been abandoned. And David, instead of retaliating, turns to God and sacrifices. And he says, I will receive your measure rather than taking measure. He says, I will trust in you rather than retaliate. I'll turn to you. And you see here then that anger is holy love. It's love in motion that, and in action that moves towards that which is harming you or it moves to protect that which is potentially being harmed. Proverbs 16 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. In the Old Testament, when God is spoken of as our covenant-keeping God, full of loving kindness, it says that he is slow to anger. He is protecting us. He is waiting for us. But here, our anger is impure. God's anger and wrath is pure, but our anger is impure. It's described in verses 31 and 32 as bitterness. 
as rage, as provocation with all forms of malice. He's really talking about retaliation there. We'll see that when he speaks to fathers of not exasperating your children so that they feel that they have no response except uh, to retaliate. But James says it this way, we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. There's a recognition that when we're angry, we need to stop and evaluate this anger. And we need to evaluate this bitterness or this rage. It's because all of life is lived out of a desire for love. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, says this. He said, we think of sin and we think of righteousness, but all of life is ordered by love. And sin is just disordered loves. And he says, in the city of man, what reigns is love for greed or love for self. But in the city of God, what reigns is love for friendship, love for God and love for neighbor. So all godly anger is set upon loving God and all that he loves. But all ungodly anger is set upon loving self and manipulating or demanding that others meet your needs. So Calvin said it this way, speaking of this kind of anger, we have to make sure that our anger is free from injured pride, spite, malice, animosity, and the spirit of revenge because God's anger is holy love. And Paul says it this way, in your anger, do not sin. Now, some people are very uncomfortable talking about a God of anger. If God is angry, that seems contrary to the forgiveness that we understand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if God were not angry, he could not be loving because God hates evil and he judges evil and he will come to correct every wrongdoing. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How can we rest when we see injustice or we experience injustice? God, the God of justice, is a God of anger and his pure anger will correct every wrong. It's not passive or indifference to evil. God judges evil and that is the loving thing for God to do because it protects us of evil's destruction. So first... God's love is holy anger, and in our anger, we're to be imitators of God and not to sin. Secondly, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Love demands that you resolve the anger in your heart and you resolve the anger in your relationships. It demands that we must prioritize this resolving of our anger and understanding what's the source of our anger. Now, I think this is a figure of speech. I don't think that Paul is literally saying within a 24-hour period, you need to make sure that you correct every problem and you right every wrong. He's saying that you, when you recognize that anger is hindering either your heart or anger is affecting your relationships, you need to resolve then. I'm going to resolve this in my heart. I'm going to resolve this in this relationship. I'm not going to let the sun go down on my anger. Now, 
It's never bad to have a rule to say, I do not want to go to bed angry. That's a great rule, but that's not exactly what I think Paul's talking about. He's saying, I want to reconcile. I want to resolve. I want to be a healer and I want God to heal me as well. I remember in my 30s, I was reading a book that a clinical psychologist who's a friend of mine gave me. And I guess that was his subtle way of, hey, Mike, you need to really process your emotions some. But he gave me this book called Love is a Choice. And it caught me by surprise. I was reading through this book and I didn't expect what would happen. But I went into Sandra after reading a chapter and I said, I'm really angry at my parents. And I've been angry at them for a long time. And I've let the sun go down on my anger. And I've not resolved this. And it's made me feel like I wanted to distance myself from them. It's made me want to criticize them or have a critical spirit when I'm with them. I find myself picking at small things that they do. And it's not right. And I need to go to them and I need to process that. And I'll say that they were gracious. It was painful and awkward and it took several meetings and to get to greater understanding and acceptance. And it wasn't as if we got to the point where we saw everything the same. But I will say this to adult children, uh, children who are now adults. Part of what happens when you grow up in a family is you see the flaws of your parents and you see their idols and you could tend to disrespect them and distance yourself from them because they are broken people. I laugh with my children and always tell them, you're going to discover just what a sinner your father and your mother have been. And when you do, I want you to know this. Go get some counseling. In fact, I want you to know, I will pay for any counseling that you need. And you tell your counselor, my dad said he's responsible for all of this, 100%. Because parents in the gospel need to admit we are flawed. And we do have idols, but what happens, children who become adults often reject the idols of their parents. And without a gospel um, framework, we just choose a different set of idols that we attach our hearts to because our hearts are idol factories. So first and foremost, when you are angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Romans 12 says it this way, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Jesus said, if you have something against your brother, go to him. He also said, if your brother has something against you, go to him. Jesus is saying you need to resolve that anger and not let it remain. I mentioned that in our marriage pre-engagement, pre-marriage counseling, we do a section on conflict resolution and I have those couples, those uh, in love, romantic, young, naive couples, imagine that they're sitting across from a table and on that table is a box. And we have that box because it's the box of conflict. And I tell them, you're going to find that a conflict is going to arise and it's going to anger you. It's going to hurt you. And what you're going to want to do is sit on this side of the table and push that box in front of your partner so that they'll take responsibility for the conflict. All the while, they will be pushing that box right towards you. And they'll say, you are responsible for this conflict. But this command not to let the sun go down in your anger, to 
deal with our anger and gospel love is to require one of you to humble yourself and walk over to the, on the other side of the table, put your arm around your spouse and say, I want you to know I'm not going to let this conflict divide us. I'm not going to let this conflict be a wedge between us. Now let's look at this conflict together. Let me share with you how I've been feeling. I'm not sure if it's right. I don't know if my anger is justified, but I don't want to wound you and I don't want to distance myself from you. And you tell me what was your intent when you do that. What do we do mostly? We mostly already have a conclusion about what someone meant or what someone's motive was. And then we just go and we fire the arrow. We shoot the gun. We light the flame and we wound them. We should at least say, I'm working through this pain in my heart. I'm not sure what I'm responsible for. And I'm not sure what you are responsible for. Let's work it through together. I will tell you that even this year, as hard as it's been for us as a congregation, I commend you for being people that are resolved to work through your conflict and your questions. And it has been difficult when we haven't been able to see each other, we haven't been together, but the Bible demands and also the gospel strengthens us. So point number one, in your anger, do not sin. Point number two, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I have to admit that um, when we were first married, I misapplied this verse pretty regularly. I wanted to not let the sun go down on our anger. I'd make Sandra stay up and we're going to work through this. And, and Sandra was more of a process oriented. I'm a fixer, you know. She's more of a process oriented person. She would say, Mike, until we've had a quiet time, a good night's rest and a cup of coffee, we don't need to talk about this. So I'd say, well, will you pray with me about this? And she did that once. I said, Lord, will you convict Sandra of her sin and her unwillingness to deal with her anger? That didn't go over so well. So that lasted one time as well. But you need to think of all your relationships as a table that God calls you to move to the side of your partner, to see what they see and say, let's attack this together. That is gospel resolution. But then lastly, he says, do not give the devil an opportunity. And what gives the devil an opportunity? Well, when you seek to destroy rather than you seek to restore. The restoring nature of the gospel makes your longing to be a restorer and to be willing to sacrifice. And really, if you think about forgiveness, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a willing to, willingness to absorb the wrong and free the other person. What do we normally want to do is we want to deflect the wrong and bind the other person. Forgiveness says that I can let go of rage or bitterness or wrath and I can forgive you. And it's important that we talk it through because it says that this gives the devil an opportunity. This will give the enemy an opportunity to drive a wedge in your marriage, in your friendships, in your church relationships. And this is what you'll think. I'll just go to another church. I'll just go to another marriage. I'll just find another friend. Until you get to the place where you're at the table and the conflict has arisen again. And you'll just wound or you'll move away 
And you'll just go from the next place to the next place until you learn how the gospel calls us to restore and to heal. Well, I know I'm out of time. Where do we see this holy anger in the life of Jesus? Just three quick places. You recall in John 2 as well as Matthew 21, Jesus goes into the temple and he is angry. John 2 says that the disciples saw his zeal, but he threw out the money changers and he said, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've used this or turned this into commerce, a den of thieves. That space, the Gentile courts, was the space where Gentiles were invited to worship God, to pray. And the Jews were so insensitive to these marginalized people. Jesus said, I will protect them and I'm going to move you out. But he wasn't out of control. Matthew gives us this bit of information. It says that he turned over the table of the money changers. They could pick up the coins and put it back in their box. But it says that he kicked over the chair of those selling doves. Had he turned over the table, those doves would have flown out. That uh, man or woman would have lost their business enterprise. But Jesus was not out of control. He was making a point. He was saying that sometimes holy love has to step into places where people are vulnerable and has to provide a voice of strength. Where do we see Jesus not letting the sun go down on his anger? John 11 says that Jesus' friends tell him that Lazarus is going to die. And it says that Jesus waited three days. Awkward to think about that Jesus waits three days. But then he goes to uh, Bethany and there he's told that Lazarus has died. We read that Jesus weeps, but it also says he wails. It says that he was troubled in spirit. That's, that's a weak translation. What it actually is saying is that his anger and his rage swelled against the injustice. It's like the idea of the, an animal like a horse. Just uh, the, 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 the horse is just enraged. And you, you hear him prepared to attack whatever is the enemy that's threatened him. Well, Jesus attacks the enemy. It's the death and the devil himself. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. He uses that anger to bring about healing and hope. And then on the cross, we see Jesus on the cross taking on God's wrath so that we might receive God's forgiveness. He says... Father, forgive them. He absorbs all the pain and he releases us. What did Jesus do with his anger? He poured that anger against the devil. And in his sacrifice, he defeated death and the devil so that we might have forgiveness. Jesus' anger is holy. It resolves conflict. It moves towards a need. And it always sacrifices in order to heal. So what about you? Have you seen that kind of love that melts your hate? That makes you want to let go of your anger? That's really what the cross does for us. It gives us power. It makes us long to be controlled not by disordered loves, but by godly loves. Let me ask you a few questions 
as we conclude. Are you reminding yourself in your anger that that's a warning light? That yes, you're in Christ, but you're in Adam. When you feel anger, are you reminding yourself, this could be destructive to me or to others? I want you to encourage you to think of anger as an opportunity for God to transform you and not something to ignore or excuse. Secondly, have you committed to work through your emotions as a process of spiritual growth? Anger is just one emotion that has negative consequences. But what about you? Have you committed that you're going to work through your sadness? You're going to work through your fears? This is where Christian counselors and pastors are very helpful. I would encourage you not to just conclude that you can work through anger on your own, but get some help and ask someone to help you understand and to see difficulties that you're dealing with. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Are you harboring any bitterness, any pain that you've refused to admit? I will say this, physical, verbal shame or abuse is never acceptable. If you are in a relationship where someone is physically or verbally shaming you or abusing you, teenagers as well, if you experience some kind of bullying at school, it's never to be excused. You talk to your parent, you go to a friend, you speak to a teacher, and if someone is harming you physically, it's never acceptable and you should seek help, tell this person to stop and do whatever it takes to make sure that you are safe or those that you love or safe. Last thing I would say is do not be afraid to admit that you're angry and do not be afraid to work through that anger in a way that doesn't cause hurt by seeking God's help. I'll close just by telling you that many years ago when this church had a church split, several people left this church, I was wounded and angry at People, probably people who made me uh, feel the most wounded I've ever felt as a pastor. And I wondered how would we ever work through the conflict. And we met at times and they went and started a church. And thankfully that church is thriving. God has even used that conflict to advance the gospel. And the pastor of that church is a friend of mine. We pray together. But I was wounded. And I wondered how would I ever move beyond that wound. One day in my quiet time, it was as if the Lord said to me, you need to pray to look for ways to love those who have wounded you. Pray to look for ways to love in order to forgive, in order to release, in order to heal. So I began to pray that. And through a number of different circumstances, particularly the children of these people who had wounded me and that I had wounded, I began to love their children and I began to take care of their children and I was involved in life with their children. And God used this as a healing moment. Maybe you need to pray that God would give you an opportunity to love those who have wounded you. It is the gospel way. Brothers and sisters, in your anger, do not sin. Brothers and sisters, in your anger, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Brothers and sisters, in your anger, do not give the devil an opportunity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Father, we know that we are in Adam and we fail others as well as ourselves. Teach us to 
be like Jesus, to move towards others, to be a restorer. And Father, teach us what it means to forgive. If there's someone here today that doesn't know the forgiveness of the gospel, that lives in fear of your anger, Jesus, would you touch their heart and show them your love? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.